As you're seated, if you would, please open up to John chapter 15. It is page 902 in the Red Bible, which is located in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep as a New Year's gift for Jacob's Well Church. Whatever season is, I just say it's a gift of that season, but really it's for anyone. The rule is if you take it, you have to read it. That's our only rule, so that's for you. For Christmas, uh, we get all of our kids' gifts, and they get one big gift. For my daughter, Carissa, we got her a guitar for Christmas, a real little guitar for her uh, to obviously carry on the musical legacy of the Jackson household. Um, I know that I'm not a good singer, but believe it or not, I can actually strum a guitar a little bit. I'm not good enough to play here on Sunday mornings, but I'm good enough to play notes so that people can kind of hear the sounds and kind of know what song I'm playing. I know enough to teach my daughter the fundamentals of how to play a guitar, although the more finer things obviously would have to be taught by someone else. But this past Sunday, I gave my daughter her first guitar lesson, and I was, I was teaching her. I was reminded of how difficult it is to start playing a guitar Not only do you have to put your hand in a very awkward angle so that you hit one string and not the other string, but you also have to put your fingers uh, a certain distance from the fret so it doesn't vibrate strangely. And on top of that, if you've ever played, you know that it's painful at first for your fingers uh, because you have to build up calluses on your fingers. And so I told my daughter, Carissa, I said, hey, uh, baby, just so you know, just so you remember, like, it's hard to play guitar. It's hard to learn to play guitar. It can be frustrating. It's even physically painful at times to play guitar. But just stick with it. Keep playing because something wonderful is on the other side. In many ways, Jesus is is saying something very similar to his disciples today. Jesus tells his disciples of the frustrations, of the difficulties, and even the pain that is coming for all who follow him. And Jesus tells it to his disciples not to discourage them in following him, but to encourage them with reasonable expectations, to encourage them to endure, to encourage them to press on through the pain, through the persecution, because something more wonderful lies on the other side. Again, if you haven't yet, please open up to John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 today. And today we're picking up uh, where we were before Christmas in the sermon series Uh, about the last week of Jesus' life. Right now, we are in the middle of what is called Jesus' farewell discourse. And in this, Jesus is giving his final instructions to his apostles before his death, which is coming only a few hours after this teaching. And so these are Jesus' words to his apostles then, but they are also his words to his disciples today. And so this is not just for them, but this is for us as well. Now, as I read through this passage, there are two words that I want you to highlight, either either literally or figuratively. And it's the words hate and the words you. Okay, I think you can tell where this passage is going already. But I want you to highlight the words hate and you. John chapter 15, verse 18 through 25. If the world hates you, 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. Lord, as we join this first Sunday of 2019, this may not be a passage that we would pick to celebrate the new year. And yet maybe this is the passage that you have ordained for us to show us what the new year is going to hold. Help us, Lord, to be faithful followers of you this year so as to proclaim your glory throughout the world. Whatever it takes, whatever comes, help us, Lord, to be faithful. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. One of the most disturbing trends that I see in the American church is what is called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There are, quote, pastors who are telling people that if they have enough faith, that God will heal them as if God is obligated to do so if they can ratchet up their faith high enough. They are telling people that if you fast and you pray long enough, God will give you hundreds of thousands of dollars. I've even heard a story of a pastor who has been teaching that, that you should start tithing, which is right and good and biblical. But, but if you start tithing, God will double what you give, put into the offering basket. And if he doesn't, come to the pastor at the end of the year and he will double it for you. Which means, in the end, people are not worshiping God with their money, but they're worshiping money with their money, right? Such, such teaching, such false gospels make us angry, and they should because they are lesser gospels. But to one degree or another, we all believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. When we suffer through chronic pain, a difficult financial situation, a miserable marriage, when we are slandered, when we are maligned, when we are rejected by loved ones, don't our hearts cry out, Lord, why me? Aren't I one of your kids? Haven't I tried so hard to love you well? As if our status as Christian or faithful Christian should exempt us from such suffering. 
In this passage, Jesus does not mince words, does he? Jesus says to his disciples, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? They will persecute you. Matthew 10, 21 says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. The BBC, which is by no means a Christian organization, tells story of a man named Hakan. That's not his real name. Hakan converted to Christianity from Islam, and his family said to him, go away, you are not our son. And then he, they told all of their relatives, all of their friends, that their son died in a tragic accident because that was way less shameful than admitting that he converted to Christianity. They also share a story of a woman who converted to Christianity, and her family just kept saying to her, the punishment is death, the punishment is death, the punishment is death. And so she ran away, and when she went to go be baptized on a Sunday, her mom showed up ran up to the baptismal and tried to pull her out of the baptismal. We've heard from one of our own members who is unable to go back to his home city in Pakistan because they are arresting young Christian men and throwing them into jail until they convert. Some of you have shared this week about how you have endured hatred and persecution for following Jesus. Some of you shared about how at work people have made fun of you or how they have labeled you or how they have paraded their sin in front of you to antagonize you. You've shared with me of how, how friends stop hanging out with you. Drinking buddies will no longer be with you because you're not drinking like they're drinking. You've shared about how your family has shunned you for weeks, months, even years, all because you follow Jesus. And the question is, why? Why is it that people hate Christians? In some ways, it makes no sense. Because we have received the greatest unconditional love of the world, and we are trying to give that greatest unconditional love to the world. And so if we're loving people, why would people possibly hate us? Well, Jesus lays out the reasons very clearly today, and he does so not to discourage us, but to encourage us in the midst of suffering to have the right expectations that this is what comes to the followers of Christ. And he does this to encourage you to endure, to press on, because something greater is on the other side. And so as we look at this text today, the first reason we see Jesus says the world hates Christians is because the world hates the chosen. I'm going to read to you from verse 18 and 19. And in these two verses, Jesus uses this word, this name world, sorry, this term world six times. And when he uses this term world, he's not talking about the earth, like the dirt and the rocks and things like that. Jesus is specifically talking about those who are not truly born again Christians, those who belong to the world, those who see the world through a world lens, a worldly lens. To put it another way, the world is anyone who rejects Christ as their authority and instead are governed by the world's values and systems and their own desires. So verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That is a very important statement. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A a word that I think is really important for us to see here in verse 18 is the very first word, which is the word if. I think if is important because in this passage, Jesus is not telling the apostles, he's not telling us that everyone everywhere is going to hate you all the time, right? Like you are an unsuccessful Christian if, if everyone at work doesn't hate you or if everyone on the, in the neighborhood doesn't hate you because of your Christianity, right? If everyone hates you on your street or at work, it's probably not because you're a Christian. It's probably because you're just me, right? Because you're disrespectful. Jesus says, if the world hates you, meaning that it's not all the time, everywhere, but on occasion, this is going to happen if you live as a follower of Jesus. But then he goes on to show that not only is it on occasion, but it is also inevitable. End of verse 9, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, if we faithfully follow Christ, not, not every person of the world will hate us, but some will. You know, this is so hard for, for people like me who are feelers, who are conflict avoiders, who wants everybody to love us, who doesn't want anybody to reject us. But again, what this verse tells us is that if no one hates us because of our Christianity, if we've never endured any persecution because of our faith, then something is wrong. And we'll talk about that later. Now, why does the world at times hate those who faithfully follow Christ. Well, verse 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Jesus is very clearly telling us that if you belong to the world, the world would be very chummy with you. They would be very happy with you. They would love you. Verse 19 goes on and says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't miss the glory of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, Christian, you do not belong to the world anymore. You belong to me. You may act worldly, uh, you may do that, but you don't belong to the world. You belong to me. You belong to a new kingdom, a new empire. Jesus tells us that he chose us into his kingdom, but he also chose us out of the world that we might be conformed into the image of Christ, that we might have the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, and not of the world. Romans 12, 2, and it will be on the screen behind me, I think puts so succinctly what Jesus is telling us here. It says, do not be conformed to this world, it's hard to do. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, 
Friends, what Paul is talking about here is that we approach the world from a different vantage point. We approach the world with what is called a biblical world and life view. And what that means is that as we listen to the news, as we engage in conversations and conflict, as we engage with our children, as we engage with our parents, as we engage with the world around us, what we're doing is we're taking in the information and we're constantly going like this. Okay? All right? You're, in some ways, you're looking at the world through the scriptures to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is precious, what is evil, what is wicked, what is good. It's a biblical world and life view. And so we approach the world in a very different way. And because of this, because, because we are called to hold the values of the scripture, it brings hatred, it brings persecution, it brings rejection. I mean, consider the public steer. What is the attitude of the world towards those who hold a biblical understanding of heaven and hell and the exclusivity of Christ alone for salvation? The world does not like that. What is the attitude of the world towards a biblical view of sexuality, whether it be abstinence before marriage or marriage between one man and one woman or marrying only in the Lord? What is the world's view of that? They don't like it. Or what about the world's Attitudes towards the biblical understanding of a child in the womb who is human, made in the image of God, precious to God, and worthy of our protection and care. The world does not like that. Christians, if you have a biblical world in life view, or as you grow in your biblical world in life view, you can anticipate there will be pushback. There will be rejection. There will even be hatred directed at you to one degree or another. One of the members of our church here was in an executive role uh, at a company that he worked for. And he shares this story with me. He said, I shared my faith with a young woman on the shop floor of the company I was working for. She was pregnant and was thinking of having an abortion. I shared with her that the child in her tummy was no accident and that there were other options she could consider, and then prayed for her. This got back to the president, my boss, and I was told that I could no longer share my faith with anyone at the company under any circumstance, given the fact that I was an officer in the company. I prayed about this for two days and consulted some of the men in my life, another reason for spiritual intimacy, <laughs> and then resigned my position at the end of the week. I had not even started looking for a job, but felt that I could not biblically comply with the directive. You know, I love the book of Daniel because Daniel was a model citizen. He was a great help to the empire, to the emperor, to the king. He was promoted throughout the ranks, and yet when Daniel was told that he could no longer pray to God, do you know what Daniel did? He prayed to God. <laughs> When Daniel was told that he had to bow down and worship a statue, do you know what Daniel did? He bowed down and worshiped the Lord because he knew that he belonged to a greater empire, a greater king, that there was another authority over his life that was above the earthly authority, and that was his ultimate authority. And so whenever the earthly authority went against the heavenly authority, he had to not obey that earthly authority. Christians, when the world hates you, they should hate you not for what you do wrong, but for what you do right. 
Christ has chosen you out of the world to be citizens of heaven, to have a new master, a new Lord, a new way, a biblical and biblical way of looking at the world, to give you new passions, to give you new standards, to give you a new view of everything that is going on in the world. Are you willing, not abrasively, but humbly, respectfully, and lovingly to stand up for your faith in such a way that it pushes back on the world views around you and on occasion makes people hate you? The world at times hate faithful followers of Jesus because we have been chosen out of the world, plucked out of the world, out of the darkness and brought into the light of his kingdom to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to love and obey and live according to God's word, which presses against the world. And this brings us to our second point. The world hates us because we have been chosen out of the world, but also because the world hates the Son. Verse 18. Again, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And listen closely. If they persecuted me, which we all agreed they did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You know, one of Jesus' major emphasis here is that he was the first one to be hated. The world persecuted him. And if he is your master, if he is your Lord, if you follow him, you should expect the same. Because if hatred and persecution is not above a perfect, holy, righteous, loving, merciful, gracious Son of God, it's not above his followers. I alluded to this a bit in the previous point, but the wor- reason that the world hates you is because Jesus is inside of you. Because you're being conformed to the image of Jesus. And because they hate Jesus, they hate you. Now here's the question. Why did they hate Jesus? Again, he was a man of unconditional love, of mercy, of grace, of patience, of care. Why would somebody hate someone like that? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage why. He says there are two reasons why they hated him. First, they hated, the world hated Jesus because of his words. Verse 22 says, if I had not come and spoken to them, spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now certainly Jesus is not saying, hey, if I didn't come on the scene, if I didn't show up, if I didn't start teaching, these people would have been sinless human beings, right? Jesus was a Jew. He understood the Old Testament. He knew that Sin, sin was pervasive from the fall of mankind that it spread upon every person. He knows all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet he says here, if I had not spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. And so what is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is talking about a particular sin. I would say that the, the, the ultimate sin. Albert Barnes calls it, and I think he words it so well, 
the crowning sin. The sin of all sins, which is the rejection of God. The rejection of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You see, one of the proofs of Jesus' divinity was simply the authority with which he spoke. Almost like he was an insider on the world of God. And what made Jesus' words so offensive to the people is that it looked past their actions, their external behaviors, which they were putting on for the rest of the world, and it dove straight into the heart. And what it revealed was something very ugly. And people did not like this, and so they hated the words of Jesus. Ironside tells a story that illustrates this point so well. He shares about an African missionary who goes over to Africa right when Africa's opened up to missions. And this missionary hangs a mirror on the tree outside of his home for whatever reason, for shaving or whatever. And one of the wives of one of the African chiefs comes to visit him one day. And she's never seen the, 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 the crazy uh, drawings on her face or, or just kind of the weatheredness of her face. And she looks at the tree and she asks the missionary, she says, who is that horrible looking person inside the tree? And the missionary responds, it's not the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. She refused to believe the missionary until he took it down off the tree and she started moving around and finally she believed that it was her own face. And she said to him, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? And the missionary really didn't want to sell the mirror, but he thought after her persistence that it would be better to sell it and keep the peace amongst the tribe than to keep the mirror. And so they agreed upon a price, and he sold it to her. And so she took the mirror, and she said, I will never have it making faces at me again. And she threw it to the ground to crush it. Men and women hate Jesus and his words, his teaching for much the same reason. Not because his teachings are untrue, but because they are painfully true. And deep down, every person knows it. The words of Christ given in love uncover a reality within us that is absolutely repulsive and our heart is to suppress it. You know, the end of verse 20 says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours, which many didn't. But it's assuming that the, the apostles, as they go out, their words will be the words of Christ. Friends, we present a beautiful and amazing, but also a very offensive gospel. A gospel that are the words of Christ himself. A gospel that is a mirror. A gospel that tells us the sinfulness of our sin. The just punishment of hell. The inadequacy of our efforts to make ourselves right with God. It is the most offensive gospel out there. We present a gospel that we are so messed up, so wicked, so sinful, that God himself had to come down to clean up the mess. That Jesus lived a life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. And that because we are completely inadequate in our own self to save ourselves, we must completely surrender to the grace and mercy of God alone for salvation and to trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. These words of the gospel are supremely offensive, and yet it is the greatest news the world has ever heard. 
Christians, we are to share the words of Jesus humbly with gentleness and respect, but we must be careful not to lessen the offense of the gospel. We cannot proclaim the gospel if we do not talk about sin. We cannot proclaim the gospel without talking about the just judgment of God. Those are offensive terms, but we cannot share the gospel without it because we cannot talk about what we are saved to until we talk about what we are saved from. The world hates Jesus because his words are like a mirror that painfully reveal the neediness and darkness of our souls and point us to a savior. The second reason Jesus gives here, they hate the words of the son, but they also hate the works of the son. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Again, Jesus is talking about the crowning sin of rejecting God, rejecting God's son, rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Jesus has said, if they did not reject my works, they would not be guilty of rejecting salvation that God has given. You see, it is right and good for all of God's people, for all people in the world, to be skeptical when someone comes on the scene and says, I am the son of God. When someone comes on the scene and says, I am the Savior of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If someone comes in here and says that, be skeptical. Please be skeptical. But when that person starts controlling the weather, when that person starts walking on water, when that person starts making blind people see, mute people speak, paralytic people walk, when that person starts raising dead people, when that person himself raises from the dead, believe his claims. Because no one else does it. Only the Son of God can do that. Only God in the flesh can do that. And so Jesus says here, again, verse 24, he says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, no one else did these things. Only God can do it. They would not have been guilty of sin, the crowning sin of rejecting Christ as the Son of God. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. We'll discuss that in a bit. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I want to be careful, but I think, I think we can insert into, into this last verse, they hated me without a just cause. And the reason why I think we can insert this is because Jesus just taught, told us the causes for their hatred, right? They hated him because of his word. They hated him because of his works. They hated him without just cause. Jesus was gracious, loving. I mean, why? Like, why when Jesus heals a blind man would the religious leaders be angry? I, it makes no sense in the world. But they're angry because it was an attack on their pride. They were jealous for, for the following that he was gathering. Christian, if you are faithful to live as a disciple of Christ, if you are gentle, loving, and compassionate, and yet the world hates you without just cause, know you are in good company. You should not be surprised when you are hated without just cause because they first hated Jesus without just cause. So why does the world hate on Christians because you've been chosen out of the world. You've been given or are being given a biblical world in life view which often pushes against the world. But also because the world hates 
Jesus. The divine words of Jesus, divine works of Jesus, they hate Jesus who lives inside of you. Finally, we see the world hates on Christians because ultimately they hate the Father. Verse 21 says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. Who sent Jesus? The Father. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. Skip down a couple verses to chapter 16, verse 2 and 3. Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things. Why? (laughs) Because they have not known the Father nor me. You know, there's a lot of observations we can take from these verses. One of them I think is just so important is that the Father and the Son are so extremely inseparable. 1523, Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. 163, Jesus says, they have not known the Father nor me. 1 John 2.23, Jesus says, sorry, not Jesus, uh, um, John says, no one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the one who narrates God on the plane of human existence. If you love one, you love the other. If you hate one, you hate the other. I think this is, this is evident. You know, if, if I met with you and you're like, Dan, I love you, but I hate your son, I'd be like, oh, that's funny. I hate your whole family now, right? Like, <laughs> you can't hate and reject the son without hating and rejecting the father. I think this is helpful in talking to our agnostic friends. Or if you're here and you're agnostic and you say, you know what? I have a connection with the God of the universe, but I'm not a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, nope, you can't have one without the other. You can't say, you know what? I reject Jesus, but I accept this God thing. Jesus says, nope, you reject me, you reject the Father. The second observation observation to this I think is really helpful is that the people that Jesus is talking about, the worldly people Jesus is talking about, are religious people. (laughs) He says that they will kick you out of synagogues. That's religious people. He says they will hate you thinking it is offering service to God. You know, often the people that most hate born-again Christians are people who claim to be Christians, people who are religious people. One of our members of the church shared about when she was a child, her dad became a born-again Christian. They lived in an Amish community, and he came to the realization of the sufficiency of salvation through faith in Christ alone. And because of his, his, his new birth, He lost his job. They had to move to the other side of the country. He was excommunicated from his church. His family cut him off. Now, now she says the shunning has become slightly less. I think it's 20 years later. But still, they're they're not invited to weddings or family gatherings. I could share story after story of Of many of you, when we have membership interviews where you share about how you came to trust in Jesus and and your parents or your, your brothers and sisters or whoever it might be who go to church somewhere, 
that doesn't preach the gospel or teach the Bible, how they had shunned you and how they have said, we want nothing to do with you, at least for a time, for a season, maybe weeks, months, years. You see, friends, it is not just the, quote, worldly people that hate and persecute followers of Jesus. It is the religious people that hate and persecute followers of Jesus. Why does the world hate followers of Jesus? Because we are chosen out of the world. Because they hate the Son who lives inside of us, his words and his works, and because they hate the Father. James Montgomery Boyce summarizes this whole passage very helpfully in this way. He says, in the final analysis then, the hatred of the world for Christ followers may be reduced to this. The world hates Christ followers because it hates Christ. And the world hates Christ because it hates God the Father. Let me end with this. I have, you know, you may be here and saying, <clears throat> and I think this was me in reading through this passage, just thinking, you know, this, this passage really doesn't apply to me today. You know, I understand how it applied to Jesus' disciples and back then, but we live in America. It really doesn't apply to me. I don't get hated on because of my Christianity. I don't, I don't get persecuted or left out or any of those things. And so, you know, it really doesn't apply to me today. Christian, could that be because you live as a covert Christian? Could it be because in your neighborhood, although you're a Christian, you're covert about it? In your workplace, although you're a Christian, you are so covert about it. Amongst your friends, you may not swear as much as they do or say as many naughty things as they do, but besides that, you are a covert Christian. You see, if we are not persecuted at seasons, at times of our life, could it be because we live as covert Christians? And we live as covert Christians because we do not want to be hated on, because we don't want to be rejected, because we don't want to be persecuted. I think that is the reason many of us at many times, including myself, live as a covert Christian because I don't want to get the hatred back. And so why would we do this? Why would we live our Christianity publicly before the world? Three stories, real quick. Somewhat quick, all right. First, historically. Whatever happened to these apostle guys after Jesus tells them this thing, right? <laughs> Which they must have loved to hear. You're going to be hated. I'll try to go quick. Bartholomew, who preached in several countries, including India, was skinned alive and beheaded because a local king was mad that so many were converting to Christianity. James was stoned and clubbed to death. He was believed to preach in Damascus, Syria, and was the first bishop of Jerusalem, where he angered the Jews who stoned him to death and then was finished off by having his head bashed in. Sorry, kids. Andrew preached in several places, including Russia, Istanbul, Macedonia, and Greece. He angered one of the governors by converting the governor's family, and so the governor had him crucified, tied upside down in an X-shaped cross from where he preached for two days before he finally died. Can you imagine that? Preaching upside down from a cross? Peter fled Jerusalem, ended up in Rome eventually, where, where Nero was feeding Christians to lions in the Colosseum. He refused to renounce his faith, and so he was crucified at his request upside down. Thomas was impaled by a spear. He went to preach to India and was martyred there. 
He was condemned to death because they thought Christianity disrespected the caste system, which it probably did. James was beheaded. He preached in Spain. Philip preached in Greece, Syria, and Turkey. And finally in Egypt, where in Hopeless, he was thrown into prison, scourged, and finally crucified. Matthew, the tax collector, preached in Ethiopia and more. There are two versions of his death. One believes he died of natural causes. The other says that he was nailed to a bed, covered in flammable stuff. And you know what happens from there. I'll try not to say it. Jude Thaddeus, partnered with Simon the Zealot and preached in Judea, Persia, Samaria, so on. There are also two versions of his death. One is believed that he was crucified, the other clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot was a member of the Zealots before he followed Jesus. He is said to have been crucified in Samaria after a failed revolt or potentially axed to death in Persia. John, the beloved apostle who writes the gospel that we're reading, is reported to have also gone to Rome where he was thrown in boiling oil but survived. I'm not sure that makes him the lucky one. He lived at a right old age where he was exiled, as many of you know, and is the only one reported to have a non-violent death. And so why? <laughs> why, why, would they live the, why would they not live as covert Christians? Why would the apostles not live as covert Christians? Well, imagine what would happen if they did. They would have missed out on the greatest redemption of the world. They would have missed out on being part of God's story of making all things new. Two more quick stories, and I know I'm almost out of time. One, a woman in the church shares about how when she surrendered her life to Jesus, and this is, I think, Wisconsin, she was shunned by her family for 20 years. She was called the church lady. But now they are rebuilding relationships, and through those relationships, two sister-in-laws have been saved as well as three nieces and brother-in-laws because she decided she was not going to live as a covert Christian. She was hated, but as a result, others came to faith in Christ. Final story from the other side of the coin. A gentleman shared with me recently, someone who goes to our church, about how when he was in college, his parents came to faith in Christ, and he hated it. He, he, didn't, he didn't want any of it, he, in fact, he, he kind of rejected them in subtle ways. And yet, many years later, through their testimony and the testimony of other people that God brought into his life, he was powerfully brought from darkness into light. Luke 21, 12, Jesus says, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then he says this, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Christians, are you tired of sitting scared on the sidelines as a covert Christian in the midst of God's redemption? Are you ready to make a decision to stop living as a covert Christian? Are you ready to live out your Christianity graciously, humbly, and very, 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 very publicly? If you do, you will be hated more in 2019. You will be rejected more in 2019. But this is your opportunity to bear witness and be a part of the grand story of God's redemption. Not just of your neighborhood, not just of your workplace, but of the entire world. Let's pray. Lord God, I confess my covert Christianity where so often I just, I just don't want to get into it, Lord. 
help me help us to live very, very publicly our faith in a gracious, humble, loving, repentant way, Lord, that others may come to know you and that you may continue your redemption of the world through people like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.